Hello and welcome to the Licensed to Queer podcast, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people. Why not see 007 from a different angle? The piece that you're about to hear read by me, and you can find the print version of it with images, uh, screen grabs, and that kind of thing on the Licensed Queer website. It's one of those which has been going around in my head for quite some time, since I first saw Casino Royale in the cinema in 2006, in fact. The line, keep the fruit, that Felix Leiter speaks, as played by Jeffrey Wright, has always stuck out to me perhaps because of the multiple meanings of that word fruit and as a gay man it can mean something different to me in addition just to being a piece of fruit so that idea has been going around in my head for 15 years and the article is sort of an amalgamation of lots of different thoughts kind of stuck onto that main idea that I've had going around in my head all that time uh, as I've been writing this on and off for quite some time, actually, uh, other things uh, have kind of shown themselves to be relevant, including some of the publicity for No Time to Die. And uh, that particularly comes in towards the end. So I hope you enjoy this piece. Um, perhaps it might make you think about things a little bit differently. Maybe you think that I'm reading far too much into what is essentially just a very short line of dialogue, um, but I've, I, I think it's significant and the way my brain works, it ends up going off in all these other directions. So in addition to a discussion about that line of dialogue in Casino Royale, you also get kind of like a short history of gin and its war for, for popularity, for supremacy with vodka. So if you're interested in the history of booze, you hopefully will find this interesting as well. There's lots of stuff crammed into quite a, a short piece. Hope you enjoy it. Keep the fruit. Mixing up Felix Leiter's masculinity. The line, keep the fruit, didn't exist in the earlier drafts of Casino Royale. Is it just a throwaway quip or something more revealing of Felix's character? After asking the bartender to make him a martini to Bond's exacting recipe in 2006's Casino Royale, Felix Leiter commands him to make just one change, omit the lemon peel. Both this line and the character of Felix Leiter do not appear in the screenplay finished on 13th of December 2005 very close to filming. The keep the fruit line does appear as the rather more polite, can I have one without the lemon? But it's spoken by Tamelli, one of the undeveloped poker player characters, not the character who is later revealed to be working for the CIA, here named Walpert. This new character's dialogue was given wholesale, with minor modifications, to returning character Felix Leiter, following the casting of Jeffrey Wright. So why did the filmmakers give Tomelli's line, modified, to Leiter and make it sound like more of a command than a polite request? Felix Leiter is accustomed to playing second fiddle to Bond. In most of the stories, he's the archetypal helper character, 
not dissimilar to a Bond girl in this regard. The only difference is Bond doesn't sleep with Felix, although any queer Bond fan who has read Fleming's Diamonds of Forever book would probably dispute this. Some of this translates to the films as well. Many of us have years of experience shipping James and Felix. See, for instance, a very persuasive piece on the Licensed to Queer website by Kathleen Jowett and the allies sections of my own queer reviews for the films where Felix makes an appearance explore this in some detail. The relationship between James and Felix even has a name which is frequently used in the fandom, a portmanteau word of their first names, Jalix. And while it is never wise to ask a gay couple in real life who is the bottom and who is the top, Lighter has traditionally been portrayed with a subservient status. In the Fleming novel of Casino Royale, Felix expresses astonishment at the size and strength of Bond's martini. Right from the start, masculinity in the world of Bond has been measured by how much you can take your drink. In the films, Felix's masculinity is more muted than Bond's in subtle ways. He often wears lighter coloured, less conventionally masculine clothing than Bond, for instance. In Doctor No, he even wears a pair of very fetching cat's eye sunglasses, which may have been groovy for all the cool cats in the 1960s, but have since become marked for gender. In extremely crude terms, and please never say something as ignorant as this to real-life gay men, Felix is the woman and Bond is the man. And this is despite Felix being from Texas, with all the masculine baggage that entails. Incidentally, Bond designer Tom Ford has spoken very eloquently about growing up gay in Texas. In a nutshell, it wasn't easy. The roles assigned to James and Felix remain largely unchallenged for 50 years until Casino Royale mixed things up a bit. Geoffrey Wright's Felix Lighter comes across as a combination of both the lighter-hearted lighters, the early Connery era, and the no-nonsense straight man versions, Diamonds of Forever onwards. He's still very much the helper character, but rather than merely following Bond around, cleaning up his messes and getting on with things behind the scenes to move the plot along, in both Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, he comes through in a crisis for Bond. He's there for Bond when he's really needed. In both films, there is genuine romantic on-screen chemistry between Daniel Craig and Jeffrey Wright, and like a real-life couple, their relative status is less clear-cut. Like many mature gay couples, they've got past the rigidly defined bottom-slash-top stuff and just got on with doing whatever feels good. What does all this have to do, then, with a slice of lemon peel in a martini? Thanks largely to James Bond, we all know that the way someone orders a martini says a lot about that person. In Casino Royale, the filmmakers complicate things further by bringing fruit into the equation. The word fruit has been used as a slang term for gay men since at least the Second World War, perhaps because fruit is commonly thought of as soft, when ripe at least, and feminine. Certain fruits and vegetables are so commonly used as stand-ins for parts of the male anatomy that they have become standardised in gay culture and beyond, especially when used in the form of emojis. See, for instance, the peach, which has a long history before hitting the mainstream via Call Me By Your Name, and the universally recognised aubergine eggplant if you're in the USA. 
Any produce with a phallic shape gets co-opted to look cute about gay sex. Bananas and cucumbers took on additional queer connotations, thanks to a Russell T. Davies's 2015 project. So when Felix gruffly commands the bartender to keep the fruit, it opens up possibilities. Is he asserting his masculinity over Bond and the other players by rejecting their fruitiness? Is he protesting too much and trying to hide something about himself he doesn't like? Is he just not a fan of lemon? But there's more to this than just a slice of lemon. Beyond the garnish, what about the drink itself? One of the strongest beverages on the mixologist menu, sipped from a vaginally shaped receptacle on a delicate stem. Hmm. The martini is inherently a crisis of masculinity in a glass. When you stop and think about it, it's hard to think of a gayer drink than Bond's Martini. It's hard to think straight, or at all, after you've had more than a couple of them. Mother's Ruin Whether you prefer it with lemon, like Bond, or without, like Felix, a true martini is still mostly a glass of gin. A spirit which is still known here in the UK as Mother's Ruin, a label it acquired in the 18th century. There's a degree of truth in gin drinking contributing to women turning to prostitution and neglecting their offspring, as depicted in William Hogarth's famous prints, including 1751's deeply unflattering portrayal of Gin Lane, a visual distillation, pun intended, sorry, of the newspaper headlines of the time. Contrast the deplorable Gin Lane, as the despairing British government implored the populace to do, with the idealised Beer Street. These prints appear in the article version of this podcast. So if you go to licensedqueer.com, you'll be able to see those illustrations. Or you can just Google Hogarth, Gin Lane, Beer Street, and you'll see exactly what I mean. In Hogarth's Beer Street, citizens are shown pleasantly carousing rather than cavorting, debauching and self-destructing, as they do on Gin Lane. The gin craze of the 18th century was undoubtedly a public health nightmare, with thousands of Londoners addicted to cheaply made and potentially poisonous gin. That's what happens when you make gin in your bathtub, apparently. The government was eager to switch the drinking public onto less strong stuff, but the spirit itself was also a victim of a smear campaign by beer producers. They commissioned Hogarth's best-selling prints, and beer became preeminent when the Duke of Wellington himself oversaw legal changes which made beer cheaper to make and sell. Beer became Britain's drink of choice ever after, at least among working-class men. The gender double standard, that it's more socially acceptable for men to be beer drinkers and drinkers in general, existed back in the 18th century. The Beer Street sketch shows a couple of women enjoying a beer, but it's already a male-dominated scene. Gin's popularity has fluctuated considerably in the interim, although it has usually retained a metropolitan, therefore feminine, connotation. The mid-19th century saw a resurgence in its being socially acceptable, with ornate gin palaces popping up all over London, and envoys of the British Empire drank gin with tonic water 
ostensibly to ward off malaria, although the quantity of quinine that would have been required to give the drink any medicinal properties would have rendered the drink completely unpalatable. The British Navy's contributions to cocktail culture cannot be underestimated, although it must be noted that gin was routinely consumed more by officers than privates, who were rationed with rum instead. In the latter half of the 20th century, we can credit Smirnoff with successfully persuading many to switch to vodka by making people self-conscious about the smell of their ginny breath. Their Leaves You Breathless ad campaign, there are pictures on the website version of this, began in 1953, the same year Casino Royale was published. No wonder Fleming started having Bond drink vodka martinis as early as the second novel, Live and Let Die. Gin was starting to be seen as old-fashioned, upper-class, stuffy, and a bit effeminate in comparison with clean and clear vodka. While the bond of the novels does continue to order gin-based drinks from time to time, a product placement deal with Smirnoff for the film of Dr. No secured Bond as a vodka drinker in the popular imagination until 2006's Casino Royale. By this time, vodka's popularity was waning and gin was already staging something of a comeback. Not so straight up. You could say the gays helped set the trend. Gin has long been a hit with gay men. Like fruit, we have frequently been associated with things that are feminine. A book-length study of the martini, Martini Straight Up by Lowell Edmonds, a classics professor, enjoyably teases apart many of the complexities of this drink, including its apparent genders. Edmonds concludes that appreciation of the martini was a woman's as much as a man's province. It's a book I really warmly recommend if you're into martinis. In the Bond films, the martini has historically been more of a man's drink. GoldenEye's Zenyronatop bucks the trend, ordering the same vodka martini as Bond straight up, i.e. without ice, with a twist. The aim is to show her as Bond's equal and she is often shown through the film in quite masculine clothing, coding the character as queer. She is more than coded as queer in the uncut version of the film, where she propositions Natalia, telling her to wait her turn after she has taken care of Bond in the jungle. Something interesting happened with the switch to gin martinis from Casino Royale onwards. Women started to enjoy them, including the most significant women in Bond's life. Madeline matches Bond martini for martini in Spectre's train scene, a sure sign that she's the one in Bond's mind. Previously, Vesper Lind had an approving sip of the gin-based concoction named for her. Compare, though, the scene where Vesper tries the gin martini for the first time in Casino Royale with the scene where License to Kill's Pam Bouvier downs the vodka martini left behind by Bond. Not exactly the most feminised of Bond girls, Bouvier nevertheless winces her way through his manly drink. It's too much for her, is the message. Perhaps she would have preferred a gin martini. As it happens, vodka has become something of a gay drink itself, one that is synonymous with pride, according to some commentators. 
a combination of clever marketing campaigns aimed at LGBTQ consumers and vodka containing fewer calories than other drinks, such as beer, has secured its queer popularity, although gin is starting to regain its ground from earlier in the 20th century with queer and non-queer consumers. Elsewhere in the Bond films, Cara Malovi makes Bond a vodka martini in The Living Daylights without trying it herself, although it's probably the inclusion of additional ingredient chloral hydrate that dictates this decision. Even without knockout drugs shaken into the mix, some think the martini qualifies as manly due to its sheer strength. A deleted line of dialogue from the December 2015 draft of Casino Royale reveals that even Bond recognises when it's time to switch to water, a moment familiar to all martini drinkers, but apparently alien to Ian Fleming's super spy, who downs vast quantities of booze before setting off into danger in the books. The deleted line in question occurs right after the moment which does make the final cut of the film, where Bond has just recovered from being poisoned, and upon returning to the poker table, tells Le Chief, sorry, that last hand almost killed me. He then follows it up with a line to the waiter, I think I'll change my drinks, water if you would, and we're told by the script that Le Chief looks most unsettled by this. Was this line deleted purely for time reasons, or was there a fear that it would make Bond appear more feminine? Being able to hold one's drink is, allegedly, a manly quality. Bond's order of water signals to Le Chief that he's going to be taking the game more seriously. Does it also threaten his masculinity? Interestingly, in a 2020 Heineken advert for No Time to Die, a tuxedo Daniel Craig does something similar, preferring a non-alcoholic beer over his martini. His reason? I'm working. Some less enlightened commentators on forums and social media decried the advert as woke, which I suppose answers the does it threaten masculinity question. Like Bond ordering water in the line deleted from Casino Royale and Craig in the Heineken advert, I know my limits, and I won't let insecurities about my identity override them. I enjoy a beer, grr, manly, as much as a gin-based drink. In my 20s, I might have let social convention, who I was with and where I was, dictate which drink I ordered now and then. Nowadays, I will just order whatever I want or whatever goes best with the food I'm about to eat. While I identify as a man, I don't feel a need to constantly reassert my masculinity. Perhaps this means I have a muted sense of my gender, as if the volume was turned down and I don't feel the need to shout, I am a man, literally or metaphorically in anyone else's face. Perhaps this is one of the privileges of being gay. It causes you to question things and makes you realise how much of social convention is utterly ridiculous. If you like fruit in your martini, stick with the fruit. If you don't like fruit, have it with something else. Perhaps a glacé cherry, classy, or some pepper, another of Bond's favourites. Let's be a bit more grown up about these things, shall we? Martinis all round. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's a shorter podcast than many of the others. Uh, I've been 
quite restrained. <laughs> I can talk about martinis for a very long time indeed uh, and never flag. And if you are interested in reading more about martinis, you could do a search on the Licensed Queer website and you will find lots of bits and pieces that I've written and it comes into many of the articles about specific films and there are various cocktail recipes on there. I have written other pieces already about stereotypes associated with particular drinks, including the mojito, uh, love Brosnan's line delivery there, uh, the Negroni and the Americano family, they're all related to each other. And uh, uh, we did a live Instagram event, which is um, saved for posterity on licensequeer.com, all about Campari. Uh, so that was quite fun. Uh, my husband got involved uh, in that one. And if you're interested in what I was talking about, about character archetypes and the roles that characters play in stories, I explored that quite a lot in my Tomorrow Never Dies queer review, drawing on the work of uh, Vladimir Prop from the early 20th century. And he's re worth reading in himself. You can find links to all of these articles in the website version of this podcast. And a final shout out to Meg John Barker and Jewel Scheel, who regular visitors to the website or listeners to the podcast will know how much I love their work. They collaborated on a book called Gender, a graphic guide, which has certainly influenced directly and indirectly a lot of my thinking around gender. And I first came across the term muted in their book really recommend that book if you're at all interested in how gender is constructed and everything to do with gender basically it's got it all in one book one really fun to read format so yeah hope you enjoyed this podcast check out some of the other resources maybe and i'll see you again next time